Well, thank you, Mark. And it's uh, good to be with you. I can't see you, but I'm assuming you're out there. And it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I guess I'm here kind of filling in for uh, John MacArthur. He uh, apparently left yesterday for uh, Russia, going to Moscow. And uh, I guess the one thing we've got in common is uh, it took uh, he and I about the same amount of time to get to our destinations. Uh, I was coming here from Simi Valley this morning. But uh, it's sort of getting used to the new traffic arrangements out here. And I'm sure you're uh, getting used to that as well. What I'd like to do this morning, if I could, is to turn your attention to Mark chapter 12 for a, another look at the great commandment, the greatest of all the commandments, Mark chapter 12. I want to focus on verses 28 to 34. What we have here is a little interchange between our Lord and one of the scribes. And uh, we have the scribe speaking in verse 28. He's making a request of our Lord. And one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he, that is Jesus, had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Now, this is an important question to ask because there were some 613 different laws uh, in the Old Testament. And uh, there was a constant debate, a running debate among the scribes, the Pharisees, the rabbis. uh, What was the greatest of all the commandments? And each one would test his theological mettle by the way he was able to synthesize uh, the entire body of law that had been given to the Jewish nation in the Mosaic Covenant, by which law he would choose as the greatest, thereby attempting to summarize all of the rest. And so Jesus responds to the scribe's request, and he mentions two laws, uh, the first one in verses 29 and 30, and the second one in verse 31. Let's look at the first commandment, verses 29 and 30. Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Now, this is the greatest of all the commandments. Now, what Jesus is doing here is quoting from the famous Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. This was a prayer that every devout Jew would pray morning and evening. Uh, It was an acknowledgement that the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. One meaning one of a kind absolutely unique the one and only God there is no other and as a result of who he is uh, he deserves all of our attention all of our adoration all of our affection because of who he is as the one great God and it certainly follows that because of who he is we ought to love him with all that is within us and Jesus does mention uh, four different attributes or faculties of human nature here Uh, He mentions heart and soul and mind and strength. He's not giving a lesson on anthropology in terms of giving a grocery list of the different faculties that make up human nature. What he's really saying is, love God with all that is within you. Uh, It certainly is true that the heart normally takes in the affections. Uh, The mind would refer to the cognitive, the strength to our, our physical being. But the bottom line is we are to love God with all that is within us. Now, what I want you to do is consider with me a comparison 
of that Shema here, O Israel, in Deuteronomy 6 with the way Jesus quotes it here in Mark 12. So if you will flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomos, the second giving of the law, the repetition of the law to the nation Israel uh, when it was still on the other side of the Jordan as they were preparing to move into the promised land. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now I want you to notice something here, and that is that in verse 5 of Deuteronomy 6, uh, Moses here is mentioning three things. Soul, heart, might. The word mind doesn't appear here in Deuteronomy 6, 5, though Jesus mentions it in Mark 12, 30. Why the difference? Well, the Hebrew text, the structure of it, will clear that up for us. Uh, In Hebrew, whenever the word soul, nephesh, occurs together with the word heart, levav, it always encompassed the idea of mind. So when a Hebrew read Deuteronomy 6.5, he understood implicitly by the way that text was structured that the mind was included along with the heart and the soul. So what Jesus is doing in Mark 12, as it's recorded in the Greek, is simply making explicit what was implicit in the Deuteronomy text. He wasn't so much adding to the text as simply clarifying what is meant. And I want to come back to that point of why Jesus mentioned mind as an aspect of our love for God as part of the greatest of all the commandments. Uh, Hang on to that. We'll come back to it. But let's go on to the second command, Jesus following up after the first with another one in verse 31 of Mark 12. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, what Jesus is doing here in verse 31 is quoting from Leviticus 19, verse 18. And I want to say a word here about the way this uh, verse has been misinterpreted. A lot of pop psychology today is teaching, and unfortunately it's influencing uh, some Christians, that before you can love your neighbor as yourself, you need to learn to love yourself. So you have to start with learning to love yourself, and then once you learn how to love yourself, then you can love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, But that's not what this text is saying. And and to demonstrate that, I'd like you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Now, this is Paul's instruction uh, to husbands as to how they are to relate to their wives and the connection of how Christ relates to the church. Ephesians 5, 28, 29. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. See what Paul is saying here? He's recognizing it as a fact of natural law that we naturally love ourselves. See, our problem is because we're fallen beings, we love ourselves too much. That's our real problem. And what goes for much of supposed clinical depression today is, quite frankly, a person who loves himself too much and, as a result of that, has overly high expectations of what life ought to be giving him. And if he compares where he is with where he expects he ought to be, uh, the, the gap between those is what produces his depression. 
Now, what he needs to do is take another perspective on what's happening. What he needs to do is reflect on what he deserves as a wicked, rebellious sinner before God and then measure how God has treated him in comparison to what he deserves. And when he looks at the difference there, his depression will turn into joy and thanksgiving for the grace and mercy of God in his life. So we don't need to encourage people to love themselves. They already love themselves too much. Uh, telling a, an unbeliever to love himself is like giving a pack of cigarettes to a man dying of lung cancer. It's the last thing he needs to hear. What he needs to hear is how he must deny himself in order to love his Lord and to deny himself in loving his neighbor. And, of course, these are the two great commandments. They summarize the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, which in turn summarize the rest of the Mosaic Law. So Jesus has for us summarized all of the law in these two great commandments. Now notice the response of the scribe to the reply of our Lord in verses 32 and 33. And the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. Of course, you know our Lord is always right and the scribe recognizes that. And to love him with all of the heart and with all of the understanding and with all of the strength. And to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, what we have on the part of the scribe here is, a, is an acknowledgement of the truthfulness of what our Lord has said. And it is a measure of the work of God in this scribe's life that unlike the Pharisees, whom Jesus called the blind guides of the blind, this man did indeed recognize the truth of what Christ was saying. Now, notice the recognition that Christ gives to the scribe in verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Why did Jesus say he wasn't far from the kingdom of God when he had responded correctly to what Jesus had said. I think because Jesus was implying that even though the scribe recognized the truth of what he was saying, which itself was an indication of an extension of God's grace to him, he did not yet recognize that the very one who so well responded to his question was the very God to which Israel was to give their allegiance who was the only one who can enable him to obey those greatest of all the commandments. So he was close to the kingdom, but he wasn't yet in the kingdom because he had not recognized the king for who he was. Now, launching off from this passage, I'd like us to consider this issue of what it means to love God with the mind. That seems to be a lost art today, uh, especially among Christians on the American scene. I recall the statement made uh, some years ago by J.I. Packer uh, in his observations of American Christianity. Uh, he said, American evangelicalism is 3,000 miles wide and half an inch deep. Uh, why do we not have the depth of spirituality that ought to characterize us as Bible-believing Christians? Why does so much of our spirituality uh, smack of uh, superficiality and only surface emotionalism. I think the reason is because we have uh, lost sight of the need to love God with the mind. 
Now, what does it mean to love God with the mind? I'd like to suggest that what it implies is that we seek to think God's thoughts after him. In an act of worship to him, we seek to think his thoughts after him. How do we do that? By reading, by studying, by meditating upon, ruminating over, reflecting upon the scriptures, which give us his thinking, records for us his thoughts. After all, if God really is our summum bonum, our highest good, what could be more important to think about than his being, his character, his will, his works, his ways? So to love God with the mind means that we are to seek to think God's thoughts after him as an act of homage and worship to him. And I think there's biblical support for this, and I'd like to turn to two passages, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. Uh, going back to Isaiah chapter 55 in the Old Testament. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. The context here is God is speaking through Isaiah the prophet to the nation Israel, uh, offering them his mercy and instructing them as to his ways. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, we find God saying through the prophet to the people, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's thoughts absolutely transcend our thinking. Because he is an infinite and perfect being. And we are very finite, fallen, fragile beings. Uh, it's a lot of work, hard work, to think God's thoughts after him. God's thoughts do not naturally come to us. That's why we have to commit to know and study the scriptures in order to see things from God's perspective. Uh, it's sort of a rule of thumb that I follow. As you're reading scripture and you come across biblical truths, doctrines, which somehow don't strike you as fair, uh, as, as not exactly right, um, then it's probably true. Because we do not, do not naturally think God's thoughts after him. Because his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And because of who God is, there is nothing more significant or higher that we can think of than him. Now, I'd like to turn to a New Testament passage, and that's Philippians 4. Philippians 4, verse 8. Uh, Paul here is uh, concluding his uh, Philippian epistle, talking about uh, the need to rejoice in all things, and then to, uh, to go to God in prayer with all of your concerns. And then in summary fashion, Philippians 4, 8, he says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Uh, here we have Paul instructing us to devote our thinking to the things of God. And I would ask you, what is... Uh, better, what is more lovely, what is of a better reputation, what is more excellent than God himself. So loving God with the mind is an act of thinking God's thoughts after him 
as we study and reflect upon the scriptures which record his thinking for us. And that completely changes our perspective on the meaning of life and reality. To specify a little further, I'd like to suggest that loving God with the mind by thinking his thoughts after him means that we need to think theologically. Now, you're probably aware that this word theology comes from two Greek words, theos meaning God, logos meaning word. You put the two together, theology is words or speech or talking about God. As a believer, whenever you say anything to anybody about who God is or what you perceive God is doing in your life or what you've learned from the word as God has instructed you, you are engaging in theology. You see, there's a general sense in which every believer is a theologian. Every believer has a theology. Because every believer has some working concept of God. And they're living their lives in accordance with that. So you see, the real question is not, do you have a theology? The real question is, is your theology a good theology or a bad theology? Is it the right theology or the wrong theology? Does your working concept of God in your mind fit the picture that God gives of himself in Scripture. And so in your act of worshiping God with your mind, what you are seeking to do is bring into conformity with the Scriptures your thinking about God so that you can live a life of wisdom, as the Proverbs talk about, beginning with the fear of the Lord and living life from God's perspective as you understand it. Uh, Paul summarizes this for us in 1 Corinthians 2.15 when he defines the spiritual man as one who appraises all things. That is, he's evaluating, he's assigning value to everything around him based on who God is and what God has revealed about himself and uh, the truth relative to his program of redemption. So what I'm encouraging you to do in thinking theologically is to evaluate everything from God's perspective and in your thinking to use what I would call theologic rather than psychologic or sociologic or any other kind of logic. Uh, to, to seek to be a spiritual person by appraising everything in light of God's truth. Now, what I'd like to do is two things. First of all, I'd like to give you an example from a previous generation of Christians who did love God with the mind and look at the differences that produced in their way of life. And then to evaluate why we today in our culture have such a struggle with loving God with the mind. Now, what I'd like to do is take you back several centuries to another generation of believers, to the Puritans living in New England in the 17th century, uh, as a generation of people who did love God with a mind, to see the differences in uh, some aspects of their way of life uh, from the way we are today. Now, in going back in history, I know I run across a very popular view of what I would call a progressivist view of history. And this is the notion that uh, every generation is improving over the generation that went before it. Uh, the old saying is, every day in every way I'm getting better and better. And applied to history then, the idea is, uh, we don't really need to consider past generations, past centuries, because those people were more primitive, uh, they don't know as much as we know today, and so there's really nothing we can learn from them. Uh, so we need to move on to the future. And that's this progressivist view of history. Now, it's true, perhaps in the areas of science and technology, that improvements have been made from generation to generation. But that's not a true statement with respect to knowledge of the truth and character development. Uh, David Wells, in his new book, No Place for Truth, 
has made a very interesting observation about our modern world and the way we think. He says it is, in fact, this assumption of an ability to move from one plateau of achievement to another that has given us a need always to be post something, uh, a feeling compelled to assure ourselves that we are post-Puritan, post-Christian, and post-modern. Our world is post-industrial, post-business. Our time is post-Vietnam, post-Watergate, post-Cold War. I guess that's why you eat post-Toasties for cereal. Uh, the need to be in motion, uh, moving toward the future, to know that we are leaving behind periods of lesser achievement and shaking ourselves free from that which is obsolete. It's obviously very great. After all, it is the desire for improvement that drives our technology and has given us a shinier and more abundant world. Some will also think that it is good for the national soul to put to rest the Puritan and Christian worlds as well in order that the spirit might be unshackled from the dead weight of the past. To, uh, to argue against that, I'd like to say we need to turn exactly to the Puritan era for an example of where we need to be today. And I'd like to take one example. It's a case in point, and that is education. And you here working on your college degree, I figured you would appreciate the comparison here with where the Puritans were in their education, with where education is in our country today. Uh, you're aware that our public educational system is basically in shambles. Uh, Alan Bloom and a number of others have, uh, have uh, highlighted this for us. I should say, too, there are a number of Christian school teachers working in our public school systems today, uh, seeking to uh, uh, be salt and light in that context, and uh, they face a Herculean task. Uh, they need our prayer and our support. But speaking very generally of the educational system as a whole, uh, it's dead. It's lost its center. There are no moral values anymore uh, being passed on from generation to generation in our education. The Puritans really peaked educationally uh, for our society in the 17th century. And frankly, we've been declining ever since then. Uh, the first compulsory public school education uh, legislation was passed in Puritan New England in the 1630s and 40s. Uh, every family was responsible for uh, training their children. Uh, every town of 50 families or more had to hire a schoolmaster, train their children. Every town of 100 families or more had to set up a grammar school. Uh, children were uh, introduced to um, literature, to the alphabet, beginning the ages of three to five. Uh, and, and even as the Puritans taught their children the alphabet, they were trying to communicate to them biblical truth. They were trying to teach them something about God's way of thinking and imparting some measure of wisdom even as three- and four-year-olds were learning the alphabet. Let me give you an example. This is from a New England primer of the 18th century. Uh, here are some of the letters. What they do is get the child to memorize the letter and then the little rhyme that goes with the letter. Uh, for the letter A, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Uh, for the letter J, Job feels the rod, yet blesses God. Uh, the letter P, Peter denies his Lord and cries. Uh, for the letter S, Samuel anoints whom God appoints. And I like this for the letter U, Uriah's beauteous wife made David seek his life. Uh, tremendous perspective to be imparting to a small child through learning the alphabet. And then the letter X, Xerxes the Great did die, and so must you and I. 
Now, they moved on from learning the alphabet to going to grammar school. They'd march off to grammar school about the ages of six, seven, or eight, graduating from grammar school between the ages of 12 and 14. Here's what they would know by that age. Uh, grammar, rhetoric, arithmetic, uh, English, and how to write, uh, also Latin, uh, so that the child, 13, 14 years old, would be able to cite read Latin uh, and would also be introduced to the elements of Greek and Hebrew. And uh, so you had a biblically literate, educated congregation so that when the pastor uh, opened the text and made some reference to a Greek or Hebrew word or quoted some uh, Latin author about some text, the people in his congregation would understand that. Now, the next step from grammar school was college. College, of course, was established for the purpose of training men for the ministry. And so young boys between the ages of 14 to 16 would go off to college, uh, graduating around 18, 19, maybe 20. Uh, in college, they would also study grammar, logic, rhetoric, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, metaphysics, ethics, natural science, ancient history, uh, Greek, and Hebrew. And, of course, their uh, language of instruction was Latin. Uh, they had to pass entrance exams in Latin to get into college. And when these men put their sermons together, they would have to translate from the Greek or Hebrew text into Latin. And, uh, and as I said, by the time they were 18, 19 years old, they had their education behind them, and uh, they were ready to face the future. Now, we look at something like that, and we, we marvel at it, and we say, well, does that mean they were that much smarter than we were, or we are today? No, not at all. See, the issue is not an issue of ability. It's an issue of priority. Uh, the reason why uh, the Puritans advanced as they did in their education is because they saw it as the outworking of their loving God with their minds. They approached their studies devotionally because they recognized that God had created the world and everything in it, and whatever they were studying, they were learning something of God and His creative power and ability. And they took that on as an act of worship of God in their love for Him, an expression of love for Him. That's why Puritan society was the most literate society in the New World, having a literacy rate of between 95 and 98 percent. And uh, quite frankly, I don't think you could find another comparable population base in our country today that would have that kind of literacy rate. Uh, and the reason is, is because they saw everything that they were doing as an act of love for God. Even the colleges that were established, as I mentioned, were, were trained, that these are established, these Ivy League schools we think of today, uh, to train men for the ministry. Uh, the motto for Harvard was to the glory of God. And I thought you'd be interested in, in hearing some of the entrance requirements to get into Harvard in the 17th century. Uh, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life and therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Everyone shall so exercise himself in reading the scriptures twice a day that he shall be ready to give such an account of his proficiency therein, both in theoretical observations of the language and logic and in practical and spiritual truths as his tutor shall require according to his ability Seeing the entrance of the word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. You see, every student, and these were teenagers younger than most of you, 
uh, would have to read the scriptures at 7 in the morning and 5 in the afternoon. They would have to appear in their tutor's chamber to give an account of what they had read that day. First, in making the theoretical observations about the structure of that text, the, the grammar of it and all the rest of it, and then also give personal spiritual applications of what God had taught them through that text. Uh, then it adds that they, that is the students, eschewing all profanations of God's name, attributes, word, and ordinances, and times of worship, do study with good conscience, carefully to retain God and the love of his truth in their minds. Else let them know that notwithstanding their learning, God may give them up to strong delusions and in the end to a reprobate mind. And that, of course, is exactly what happened in the history of Harvard University. That's where it is today. Reprobate minds training other reprobate minds because the truth of God has been lost. And that's one of the reasons why I think we struggle with that very issue today. A follow-up on the Puritan view and practice of education is the Puritan view of worship and preaching. Uh, For the Puritans, the Sabbath was the high mark of the week. Everybody looked forward to worship service, to the Lord's Day where they would sit and listen for as long as two hours at a stretch to a carefully worded sermon, expository sermon, based on the text of Scripture. They literally feasted on the Word of God because they had the ability to understand what the Word taught. Uh, Every day, the family would, or every Sabbath day, the family would gather together after the service for a noon meal uh, in which the father, as the little pastor of that flock, would lead a discussion uh, with his family in dissecting that sermon and how it applied to each member of that family. And then they returned for services in the evening and spent that day devoted to worship of God. Uh, An interesting book review was written in Newsweek magazine a few years ago about a work that had been done on preaching in New England. And I think this is interesting because it's done by a a secular editor. Uh, The title of the book review is When God Had No Competition. Here's what he said about the 17th century Puritans, according to the book he was reviewing. Imagine a literate society in which there are no newspapers, magazines, or even mail, in which the only regular medium of public information is the sermon, delivered twice on Sundays and often during the week as well, to congregations assembled on hard wooden benches. The average citizen listened to more than 7,000 sermons, requiring some 15,000 hours of concentrated attention. No wonder they achieved the degree of godliness they did in their lives. Uh, These sermons accompanied every public event, election days, Thanksgiving days, funerals, and military exercises. Whenever preachers had something to say, they would announce a fast day, all work ceased while the entire community assembled for as often as two hours at a stretch uh, to hear God's word. Now, after the American Revolution... New denominations arose wherein the only acknowledged authority was each individual's untutored reading of the Bible. Preachers continued to preach, of course, but never again would their words ring with the authority of the Puritans' shared convictions. Sunday sermons survive, of course, but as brief homilies for the inattentive, delivered mostly by preachers anxious to please. Puritan New England, by contrast, recalls a less distracted age, when the preacher could presuppose the sort of cultural stillness without which the word cannot be heard. And so you had a generation of people who fed on the word and then lived their lives accordingly. And these people were common, ordinary folk, farmers, 
fishermen, uh, traders, merchants, a few uh, civil magistrates. Uh, no different than you and I. Their difference was in their priority and seeking to love God with the mind. And I'd like to move on to consider where we are today in the contrast. Uh, and I think the reason why we do not, we are not characterized by the kind of deep thinking that the Puritans did is because, quite frankly, we're the TV generation. And as you know, Marshall McLuhan said, the medium has become the message. Uh, you see, when you watch TV, that puts you in a passive mode. And everything is fed to you in an entertaining fashion. That very medium stifles content-oriented thinking. Uh, substance is replaced with style. Now, a very important work came out a few years ago, and you may be aware of this. I'd encourage you to read it if you haven't already, and that's Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. Uh, Postman is a professor at New York University. He's not a Christian, but he has made remarkable observations about the effect of uh, television medium on our culture today, and, of course, it affects us as believers today. Uh, he compares, for instance, the difference between the kinds of presidential debates we have on television these days with what occurred a century or more ago. He makes reference to the famous uh, 1860 debates between Douglas and Lincoln on the great uh, slavery issue of the day and how these two men would debate with one another for up to seven hours at a time uh, with, with thousands of people listening and following their line of argumentation. Uh, today, of course, we have debates that are won or lost on uh, sound bites, on turn of phrase, or one-liners. Postman also makes reference to an, a former president, uh, President William Howard Taft, uh, who could hardly be put forward as a presidential candidate in today's world, uh, the multi-chinned 300-pound William Taft. The shape of a man's body is largely irrelevant to the shape of his ideas when he's addressing a public in writing or on the radio but it is quite relevant on television. The grossness of a 300-pound image, even a talking one, would easily overwhelm any logical or spiritual subtleties conveyed through speech. And that's because information is communicated today through imagery rather than through words. Now he concludes, you cannot do political philosophy on television. The form works against the content. You cannot do any serious thinking through the medium of television today. And that's where most people are getting their information. That's saying something about where our culture is going. Postman says it's called television. It is in the nature of the medium that it must suppress the content of ideas in order to accommodate the requirements of visual interest. That is to say, to accommodate the values of show business. Americans no longer talk to each other. They entertain each other. They do not exchange ideas. They exchange images. They do not argue with propositions. They argue with good looks, celebrities, and commercials. And he goes on to describe uh, what happens on news shows when uh, news anchors that he calls uh, talking hairdos uh, will give uh, so-called so in-depth reports lasting less than two minutes, punctuated with inane commercials that trivialize the very news stories themselves. Uh, he brings out another fascinating aspect that I'd never thought about before until I read his book, uh, and that is the role that music plays in television news shows. He says all TV news programs begin, end, and are somewhere in between punctuated with music. I have found very few Americans who regard this phenomenon as peculiar. What has music to do with the news? Why is it there? It is there, I assume, for the same reason music is in the theater and films to create a mood, to provide a leitmotif for the entertainment. 
If there were new mu- no music, as in the case when any television program is interrupted for a newsflash, viewers would expect something truly alarming, possibly life-altering. But as long as the music is there, there is a frame for the program. The viewer is comforted to believe that there is nothing to be greatly alarmed about. And as a result, we are losing our ability in content-oriented thinking. Uh, Wells brings out the same point. This is not just one individual who's saying this, about the impact that television has on our thinking, which has a direct impact on the way we approach Scripture. Television is a dramatic medium, the angles, images, and sequences of which are strategically chosen for their effect on the viewer. See, when you're watching something on television, you cannot control the camera angle. That's a given, and you have to accept that, and that tends to control what you're seeing, what you're thinking. Television images are fragmentary. They have what Donnelly has called a low density of definition. They are not linked cognitively to one another. What links there exist are formed in the viewer's feelings and imagination. Television is a medium whose very nature repudiates the path of intellectual knowledge because it uses drama rather than arguments to deliver essentially emotional information. And the value of its product is measured less by its truthfulness than by its emotional impact. And what that has produced today is a generation of people who don't read. And if they don't read, they don't read the scriptures. In the introduction to Postman's book, he draws a chilling parallel between the warnings of uh, um, I just lost Orwell in 1984 with Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Uh, He says, we were keeping our eyes on 1984 when the year came and the prophecy didn't, uh, that is Orwell's 1984, thoughtful Americans sang softly to praise themselves. The roots of liberal democracy had held. Uh, They had not been visited by the Orwellian nightmare. As a matter of fact, in the early 90s, now we're praising ourselves for having won the Cold War and seeing an end to uh, Big Brother and the Soviet Union. But Postman goes on, but we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another, slightly older, slightly less well-known, equally chilling, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to to deprive people of their autonomy. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one interested in reading one. And frankly, that's where we're going today in our culture. Now, we uh, look at winning the Cold War, and what has that meant? Well, that's meant that uh, the Russians now have such a thing as rock groups. Uh, There's now such a thing as Russian pornography, as a budding Russian entertainment industry. And so now Russians and Eastern Europeans are dashing headlong to catch up with our level of degradation. That's what it has meant to win the Cold War. What we need to do is return to our commitment to the scriptures and studying the scriptures and seeking to think God's thoughts after him in accordance with what scripture says. Have you ever stopped to think that God never revealed himself to us in a videotape? He could have done it. He could have had the technology invented in the first century or he could have had the Lord come uh, in our day. Imagine how easy it would be if you had had a mini cam recorder 
following the Lord around in his earthly ministry. And we could have just popped the cassette uh, into our VCR and watched our Lord in his performing his miracles and doing his teaching. But God didn't do that. He chose to reveal himself to us in a body of literature. And in order to understand the revelation that God has given us, we must be literate people. We need to be able to read. That's why all generations of Christians, going back to the Protestant Reformation, and especially with the Puritans, had such an emphasis on making sure that the next generation was well-educated so that they could understand what the Word said. Because they knew that only by understanding what the Word said could they see life from God's perspective and therefore live in accordance with God's Word. Now, just in closing here, to challenge you with where you are uh, in your own exposure to our culture today, I guess I'd ask you to uh, keep a log for a week and compare the number of hours you're watching television with the number of hours you're spending uh, reading and studying. Uh, Another thing you could do is sit down and uh, just take a sheet of paper and write down everything you know about God based on what you understand Scripture to say. How much can you put down? Uh, For those of you getting ready to graduate and you've had a major and you've been concentrating on that, uh, ask yourself this question. Do I know as much about the truth of God and His Word as I do about my college major? If you were going to hire somebody in the occupation in which uh, you're moving, uh, would you hire them if their knowledge of that occupation was equivalent to your knowledge of the Word and of the God of the Word? And so take to yourself whatever challenge that presents to you to make the commitment to love God with the mind, which is a part of the greatest of all the commandments, by seeking to think his thoughts after him, by understanding what Scripture says so that you can thereby evaluate everything around you by what Scripture says. Now, tomorrow I'm going to do something uh, radically different than what I've done this morning. And uh, it's sort of a takeoff on some things I've suggested here about the need to be able to evaluate things according to a biblical perspective. Uh, My message tomorrow is uh, going to be on the truths of Bolshevism. And uh, it's it's going to be a little different, but uh, I encourage you to be here and uh, consider what God can teach us through what he's done in history. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to consider what your word says to understand the commands that you have given us. And Lord, we acknowledge that you are the one and only God. You are very God of very God. We are here to worship you, to serve you, to give honor and homage to you uh, as our creator, our maker, our redeemer. Father, we ask that you would guide us in our thinking, helping us to understand your thoughts as given to us in Scripture, that we might be the best witness we can be for you, and showing others what it means to live a God-centered life and to be able to love you with the mind. We thank you for this time you've given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.